Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are continuing this sermon series that we call Resurrection. Uh, we are looking at the events of um, the Holy Week, the betrayal, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the, the after events through the eyes of Peter. And we're going to continue that this morning. So grab your Bibles. We're going over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at really a, a pretty key conversation where Peter needs to play out personally the implications of the resurrection in his own life. If you don't have a Bible, not a big deal. Grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 907 while you're flipping over there. Uh, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven was like a mustard seed, which for most of us means almost nothing. Uh, We are not farmers. We do not raise mustard things. Um, But a mustard seed is, from what I read, uh, like the smallest of seeds. I've seen pictures. It looks like a a piece of dirt uh, on your fingertip. Uh, But here's the thing with the mustard seed is that it grows into one of the larger plants that they would have grown agriculturally at that time. So it started out as a smallest seed. It grew into a, a, a plant so large that birds would come and nest in it. Now, there's been a lot of debate by commentators as what this means and how it plays out, but, but there's one thing I think we can all agree on. It's this, that, that Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is going to be overlooked and underestimated by anyone who doesn't have the faith to see it. It's going to look like a mustard seed, tiny, ineffectual, like a piece of dirt. But when you see it play out, it has... Uh, radical ways of, of, of growing. Uh, and we see this even in the way um, they treated Jesus, the, the king of the kingdom of heaven, the, the embodiment and the presence of the kingdom of heaven, right? He, he was a despised and rejected man of sorrows. He, he was rejected by the cultural, religious, and political leaders of his day. In fact, when they killed him, they crucified him, which was the most demeaning form of death possible. It was meant to cover him Uh, in indignity, and fill his followers with shame. Uh, And and then they took his corpse and they planted it in the ground with the hope that 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 indignity, that shame, that whatever would just silence this this small voice, this what they perceived as a small movement, and just make it go away. The problem was what they planted in the ground wasn't any normal man. He was a truly righteous man, in fact, the only truly righteous man to live an entire life and then die death, right? He, he ended up dying not because he was unrighteous, but for the unrighteous. He became a substitute for sinners and, and, and died a death that wasn't his to die. And, and as a result, man, he went to war with death and won. And when he rose, it was what many theologians call the great reversal. Everything we knew to be true is no longer true. Everything we thought was final is no longer final. Death does not have the final word. And the kingdom of heaven we see in the resurrection is breaking into the kingdom of man, a new kingdom that will supplant and overtake uh, what we think is so permanent and and so lasting. So we saw a condemned man go into death and, and a conquering hero come out like a mustard seed planted in the ground and growing into the greatest of trees. See, that's the way God's love works. It's easy to underestimate and undervalue the love of God. In fact, I think we do it chronically. We underestimate and undervalue the love of God. We underestimate and undervalue the power of grace. We really do. And um, the thing is, it carries the world's greatest power. The message of grace carries the power of resurrection. So when we left Peter in our story, um, after the resurrection of Jesus, he saw the resurrection of Christ. He saw him come back to life. But, but while he saw um, kind of the cosmic implications of this, that, that the king had returned, that the kingdom um, wasn't what he planned, but that the kingdom was here, uh, there were some very personal applications that, that he needed to explore. Because when we left him, he had betrayed Jesus three times. And, um, and as a result, he was covered with shame and weakness. But he had no idea that the mustard seed of the kingdom of heaven that had already been planted in him, that mustard seed of faith, that mustard seed of the experience of grace, 
that was planted in the fertile soil of his shame would grow into a mighty tree of righteousness and blessing. God was going to do great things through Peter, but he was going to begin by doing great things in Peter. And I think there's a real lesson for us in that. All right, we're going to read our text. Before we do, um, some people have asked me, Steve, why do you say the word of the Lord after you read the text? And that's because it's part of a liturgy. Liturgy is very simply um, something the church has done for a very long time, uh, a pattern, a habit, a discipline um, that we enter into that helps us enter into uh, the experience of grace, the experience of the church. And uh, we use what I would call relaxed liturgy all the time in our services because I love the idea that we're doing what the church has done for, for hundreds of years before us. So, so when I say the word of the Lord, some of you are like, what are you saying? And, and others of you are like, wait a minute, you left a piece off. Um, and you are tempted to finish it. And so this morning we're going to finish it, and, um, and I'm going to see if we can actually develop a new habit of finishing it. What that means is when I call the word of the Lord, uh, the congregation responds... There you go. Good job. Yes. All right. Yes. All right. So let's practice that. I will say the word of the Lord and you will say. Awesome. All right. So when I get to the end of the text and I read that, you'll know what to do. All right. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 21. We're going to be looking at this story. Um, The beginning of the story, I'm going to break in with a little bit of commentary because um, I think that it's helpful as we go through this story to kind of fill in some of the story. We're getting to this awkward conversation. That's where we're going with this. At the end of this passage is a conversation we're really going to dig into. So starting in chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he, was reve- and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So this is after the resurrection. Um, they're, they're still kind of waiting to see where this whole thing's going. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. So Simon, a guy who is not used to sitting still, probably would have been a nightmare for any teacher in class because this guy could not sit still. Uh, and, and they went fishing at night. And so he's just getting restless. He's just like, what are we? I'm going fishing because that's what he does, right? And so the disciples are like, uh, and they said to him, we will go with you. Now, whether or not it's because they wanted to go fishing or because they had agreed they need to keep an eye on Peter, I'm not sure, okay? But, but they decide at this moment, man, all right, dude, we'll, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Pause. So these guys have been fishing all night. You fish at night because it gets really, really hot during the day. In fact, by the time morning comes up, fishing time's pretty much over because the fish go deep, okay, because they don't stay near the surface. And so they fish at night. They had an unsuccessful night. They're getting ready to pack it up. They're getting ready to come in. Jesus is standing on the shore. They don't know it's him. It's just some dude. And he's like, hey, y'all catch anything? And they're like, nah, no luck. Well, I'll tell you what, just throw your net on the other side. Now, to kind of get a feel for this, you guys fishermen, you ever go fishing in your favorite spots? Imagine going to your favorite spot, fishing with your favorite lure. You work it all day. You don't catch anything, and some dude just shows up. Hey, did you catch anything? And you're like, mm, no. Well, why don't you try throwing it over there? Just, just cast it over there. And you're like, I think I know this spot, right? I've been working it all day. In fact, this is my spot. I fish here all the time. Now's not the time to throw the net, right? The sun is coming up. It's, it's, it's over. We didn't catch anything. And by the way, what does it matter if we cast it on the right side of the boat, right? There's a lot of water around here, but they do it, all right? So follow along. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in, because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, remember that's John, he doesn't mention himself by name, he always speaks of himself in the third person. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, 
for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. All right, again, I love the personality, right? John's like, wait a minute, that was miraculous. That's got to be Jesus, right? He makes an observation. Peter makes a move, right? That guy doesn't talk. He just like, he's stripped for work. He's like, all right, throw this on. I am, they're about 100 yards from shore, right? They're still working to get the fish into the boat. He throws himself into the water. Um, Classic Peter. All right. Starting in verse 8 there, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. (laughs) They couldn't get it into the boat. It's so full. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. Pause there. What did Peter just do? He went aboard and he grabbed the net and pulled it to shore by himself. Peter's a big guy. Peter is strong. That's part of the reason I think Peter is so impetuous and so full of self-confidence. This is a guy that does not shy away from conflict. This is a guy who, who relies on his physical strength and his presence, right? So he goes on, on and he grabs the, the, the net and he pulls the net ashore. It's full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, now commentators have debated long and hard about why 153. That seems like such an odd number. They've tried to come up with, well, 153. Each Hebrew letter adds up to a certain number, so therefore 153 probably matches this name for God. And if you do this arithmetic thing, and, and here's what I've discovered. I think the reason it says 153 is because they counted the fish. For real. I think it was such a large catch it was so unusual. One of them was like, I wonder how many we got. That's the biggest we ever got, right? So what do you do? You count it, right? And the number is here because it was remarkable, right? I don't think we need to find some deep spiritual meaning. I actually find tremendous comfort in the fact that it's here because the only reason John would record something like that is if it was true. That's history, that right there is evidence that the text is, is actual history. They, there's no reason that we can discover that, that, that John would include these kinds of details, right? Unless they're true. All right. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. That's miraculous. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. All right, now we get to this awkward conversation. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The word of the Lord. Good job. Well done. All right. So this is an appropriate place for them to have this conversation. When Jesus called Peter, uh, Peter was fishing. Uh, when you go back to the beginning of the Gospels, and, and, and Jesus was walking along the seashore, and he came across Peter and, and, and Andrew, uh, and they were casting the net into the water, and, and Jesus was like, hey, y'all, um, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And it says they left their nets, which I love, because again, so Peter. It's like, oh, okay. Um, and then he walks down the beach a little bit farther, and he comes across James and John, who are fishing together, the brothers. And, and he's like, hey, you guys follow me too. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they're like, okay. And they take their nets and go put them on the boat with uh, their father's employees. Uh, and then they follow. And, and as, so I think it's appropriate, kind of full circle, that, that here they are fishing, right? They get to the end, and they're like, Jesus rose from the dead, but we have no idea what to do right? We're not, we don't know what we're supposed to do or say or go, so let's just go fishing, right? So he finds them again fishing. And as they're fishing, he gives them unusual advice, right? It's sun's coming up, the morning time, they're getting ready to wrap it up and come inside. He's like, hey, you guys, cast it on the right side, and, uh, and they do it. They hadn't caught any fish, 
until they obeyed the voice. And it was in obeying the voice that they caught the fish. Many commentators have, have again, uh, observed that this is significant. I think it is, right? I think this is like a living parable. Jesus is living out for them this, this illustration. I'm going to make you fishers of men. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to do it. And when you do it, then it's going to be so fruitful. It's going to be so, like, like you're going to catch more fish than you can imagine. It's going to be miraculous both in its size and in its capacity. The nets are not going to tear. So it's symbolic of what Jesus would do with them in the following season of life. But before they do, Jesus has some unfinished business with Peter. So after breakfast, Jesus starts asking him a series of uncomfortable questions. And it seems like a strange conversation to us. Three times, Jesus is like, Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter is like, Lord, you know I love you. And three times, Jesus says, well, then tend my sheep or feed my lambs. But there are some subtleties here that I think would be beneficial for us to pay attention to. So let's take a look. In verse 15, you have the first first question. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, the word he uses for love here is the Greek word agape. Uh, Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me with a um, self-giving, self-sacrificing love more than these? Now, it's kind of vague the way that is referenced. He could be talking about more than these, as in the fishing utensils, more than these, the fish themselves, but more than likely, he's actually talking about the other disciples, these guys. Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? Peter's response, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word he uses for love is that Greek word we've talked about, phileo, which means strong affection. Lord, you know I have strong affection for you. You know that I have brotherly love for you. Now notice he doesn't say more than them. Jesus says, do you have unconditional love for me more than these other guys? And he's like, Lord, you know I have deep and abiding affection and love for you. It's interesting that this would have brought to mind clearly um, uh, Jesus' conversation with Peter previously. Because on the night of the betrayal, uh, Jesus looked at, at the, all the disciples and said, Hey, you guys, the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. Something bad's going to happen to me. Y'all are going to run away. I'm just letting you know in advance. Right? And Peter was like, Not me. Not me. Though all the others run away, I won't run. I will go to prison for you, I will even die for you. And Jesus was like, Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So surely this would have brought back to his memory his previous assertions, I love you more than any of these other guys. And Jesus is kind of digging in. Do you love me more than these guys? Do you? And instead of boasting, he simply responds, Lord, you know I phileo you, you know I have strong affection for you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. A second time in verse 16, he digs in. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now notice this time he doesn't say more than them, but he still uses that Greek word, agape. Do you you have an unconditional love for me, Peter? Do you have an unquestioning, unconditional, self-sacrificing love for me, Peter? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, he uses that Greek word phileo. I have strong, deep, and abiding affection for you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then a third time, verse 17, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time he uses phileo. Do you have Strong and abiding brotherly love for me, Peter? And Peter is grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And so he says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I phileo you. I have deep and abiding affection for you. So Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's interesting how Jesus works through 
the three questions to the point where Peter is almost exasperated. He's grieved. He's exasperated. He's like, Lord, at the end, all he can say is, Lord, you know me better than I know myself. You know my heart. Where he boldly used to proclaim his fidelity, where he used to boldly claim his strength, where he used to lean in to, to his strength of conviction and his ability to act in the face of danger, he now has no ability to lean into his own strength. He doesn't lean into his commitment to Christ. Instead, he leans into Christ's commitment to him. Lord, you know me. You know me. You know me better than I know myself. I love you. I have deep and abiding affection for you. Some of you are wondering, man, that kind of sounds like Jesus is, is shaming Peter. Right? And you, when I first read this, this is, I'm like, man, this is an unusual account. This isn't how I thought it would go down. Right? I thought Jesus would be all, show up and be like, hey, Peter, man, it's all right. We all have bad days, man. You made a mistake. You made a mistake. It's, it's call Mulligan, all right? Let's do a do-over. Grace, man, there's grace. There's grace for you. So you know what? Let's not, let's not even talk about it anymore, Right? Let's not go back to that. That that was a that was, you know what, man, I got a better future for you than that ugly past. So let's not even look at the past. Let's not even talk about your failure. Let's not even go there. Let's just talk about the future, man. But that's not what he does, is it? He like digs in. Like digs in. He's like sticking his finger in the wound. Like, this hurts. Hmm. Let me do it three times. One, two, three. Right? You denied me three times? I'm going to poke you three times. One, two, three, right? Is this Jesus being passive aggressive? Being like, I'm going to get you back, man. The answer is no. He's not being passive aggressive, nor is he um, shaming Peter. This is where we need to understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. This is a critical distinction for us to know. We need to know not only how they're different, but we need to know how they operate differently in our lives because we will mistake condemnation for God's presence and we will ignore conviction thinking it's condemnation. We need to understand this. So let me just explain. Condemnation. Condemnation is never from God. Condemnation is a blanket of rejection in which we internalize our failure and it defines our identity. Condemnation says... I am a loser. I am worthless. I am a failure. I will never measure up. I will never succeed. I will never overcome. It's a, condemnation is that sense, man, of, of just this blanket rejection that comes over us, that makes us feel unworthy of love, unworthy of affection, unworthy of people's presence. And the fuel of condemnation is shame. So when we internalize that sense, man, I need to hide, right? Guilt is about what we've done. Shame is about who we are. We feel guilt when we do something that hurts somebody. Shame is this internalizing where we, where we man, I am unworthy, I am a loser. I am a failure. Condemnation is never from God. Condemnation is from the enemy. But here's the, good, the thing. We're really good at working with the enemy, aren't we? When it comes to condemnation. Do you ever say that about yourself? You ever been like, man, I am such a loser. Man, I am such a failure. I can't believe I did that again. I do that every time. I always fail. I always screw up. I always this. I always. You ever blanket yourself with language like that? You are not in that moment speaking 
in tone or in content with the voice of the Spirit of God. You're becoming a megaphone of the enemy in your own head. Condemnation covers us with our failure. It gives us an identity of those that are unworthy and who have and should be rejected. The enemy condemns. God convicts. It's very different. Conviction is is different, right? Condemnation is a blanket of rejection. Conviction is very specific. Conviction is a very specific application of discomfort for the purpose of waking us up to an area in which we need to change. Conviction is God's work where he basically says, hey, this thing right here, that one. We're going to change that now. Now, why does there have to be discomfort? Because if it felt good, you'd never change. And if it was just a still, quiet voice, there's a reason you haven't changed already. You love your dysfunctions. You, you love, right? We, he has to wake us up to something better. It is God's gift to us to help us change. All right, my, uh, my pastor when I was at the journey, Darren used to use this illustration. And man, it was powerful. It stuck with me. And I've used it a couple times over the years here. We're going to do it again. Um, So everybody, take your finger, put it up. There we go. Finger up. All right. Now I want you to find the soft spot in your shoulder right there in the joint. Did you find it? Now push harder, harder, only your own shoulder. I saw that. (laughs) That's right. Now push it in. Does it hurt yet? If not, you're in the wrong spot. Now just leave it there, okay? Now, if you had to go through the whole day like this, do um, you think you could ignore it? you think you, your mind would keep wandering back to it? Yeah, you can take your finger away now, right? Some of you are like, ah, right? You still feel it, right? That's conviction. Conviction is when God brings a very specific area of discomfort into your life, something that's going to get your attention. It's not going to let your mind wander, but it's because he's saying, you see this thing right here? We're going to change this. I'm going to give you the gift of repentance. Repentance is one of those biblical words that we don't like, man. It's just not popular in our culture. It's not popular in a lot of churches because it just sounds negative. It just sounds horrible. It's like, oh, repentance is that dark, ugly thing. You guys, repentance is beautiful. Repentance is God's gift of change. If God didn't give us repentance, we would be enslaved to all the attitudes and the behaviors of self-destruction, self-focus, self-absorption that would block us off from a deeper and fuller experience of love. Our worlds would shrink if God did not give us the gift of repentance. And repentance is where God is going with conviction. He's poking us. He's making us uncomfortable in a very specific, uncomfortable way in order to draw our attention to an area where he's saying, you see this area? Up till now, I've kind of let you just slide with this, right? We can't fix everything at once. We're going to move progressively in your life, help change and make you more like Jesus. Right now, that's the area we're going to focus on. Right now, that's the area we're going to help you move through conviction, confession, and repentance, because I want to see you set free. See, Jesus is like a surgeon. We have all these areas of unhealth in our soul. And it is his intention to remove them. It is his intention to bring us into the experience of the resurrection. Not to leave us as we were in the old man, but to deliver us into who we are in the new man. Not, not as we are in, in the old humanity of Adam, but, but into the great glory of the new humanity in Christ. And that progressive change requires him to do surgery. You guys ever heard the phrase, time heals all wounds? It's a lie. It is. Because time doesn't heal all wounds. Time only heals clean wounds. Wounds that are infected with bitterness. Wounds that are infected with self-absorption and self-pity. Wounds that are infected with self-focused desires don't heal. They fester. And you might cover them up 
You might like to pretend they're not there. You might like to, to hide them away and, and, and man, I'm never going to touch that because that hurts too much. Time doesn't heal those wounds. The only thing that heals those wounds is, is, is the flushing out of grace. God has to come in and, 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 and open it up and flush it out with grace. And it's in the flushing out of grace that genuine healing can take place. And just like it sounds, that's not always pleasant. Sometimes it hurts. Just like Peter. This conversation wasn't the most pleasant conversation Peter had ever had, right? Peter denied Jesus three times. And three times Jesus pushes in with the purpose of setting Peter free. It's like Peter, Jesus looking at Peter and saying, man, I see your shame. I forgive you. I love you. And I commission you. I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't real. Jesus doesn't show up and say, oh, it's no big deal. It was a big deal. Jesus doesn't show up and say, oh, let's minimize it or pretend like it was. No, it's like, man, no, this was, this was cosmic treason. You betrayed the Son of God. That's a big deal. He speaks the truth, but, but in speaking the truth, he, he opens something up for the purpose of the washing out of grace. John chapter 1 tells us that he is full of grace and truth. He comes in with truth so that there can be waves and waves and waves of grace that will come in and flush out the sinful attitudes and behaviors the false beliefs about God and ourselves that are trapping us. You guys, condemnation seeks to trap you, imprison you in the experience of pain. Condemnation just blankets you. And, and we hate the feeling of condemnation because we hate the feeling of shame. And so as a result, we just push it away. We, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to open it up. And, and, and so as a result, we're in a sense becoming an agent of the enemy in our own lives. If I just pretend it's not there, it's not there. If I just pretend this wound doesn't exist, man, it doesn't exist. God isn't satisfied leaving us in that place. And so Peter is, he's saying to Peter, man, I love you as you are. I love you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. I love you in spite of what you've done, but I will not leave you defined by what you've done. I will free you in grace so that you can be freed to your true power. So three times Jesus pushes into Peter's pain and three times focuses Peter on love and three times he commissions him to strength. He says to him, man, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. After each time he, he comes with a, a commission, right? And something struck me as I was studying it this time. I've read this passage, I don't know, dozens of times and I've studied it and, and, and I've, I've taught it. Um, but I'm not sure I've ever asked this simple question. What did Jesus mean exactly when he said, feed my sheep? And why does he repeat that part three times? How is it connected to the specific repentance that he's calling Peter to experience? See, previously I took this as kind of a general call to apostolic leadership and teaching. So when he said, feed my sheep, what he was saying was, man, go do what apostles do. <laughs> Create systems, organize stuff, lead people, teach people. Just go do the work of ministry. I'm freeing you to go back and do the work of ministry. Right? I'm letting you know I trust you enough. I'm letting you know that I'm commissioning you again. I'm, I'm releasing you to go do the work. But I think there is actually a stronger connection between his experience of conviction and his new experience of commission than I had noticed before. I think Jesus, in essence, is saying, man, Peter, right now, 
on this beach, in this place, in this conversation, you are learning something that you didn't know before. Something you couldn't learn when you were trapped by your pride. Something that you, you couldn't understand when you were buried under your shame and buried under your condemnation. You are learning something about the beauty of dependence. You're learning something about the beauty of resting in my love instead of performing for your glory. And that pain that you're feeling right now, that pain in this conversation, man, every time I ask this question, you, there's a piece of you that wants to just run away. Right? When you get to that third question, it says he was deeply grieved, man. There's a, he wants to, no, you, that pain you're feeling, don't run from that. Don't run from the pain. Minister to others from it. That place of weakness that I'm healing in grace right now, it's going to become your greatest strength. You're going to understand people's weakness in a whole new way because you've become acquainted with this place in your soul. Because if you've experienced this pain, you're going to have the ability to meet people in their pain. Not lecture them, not tell them how to fix themselves, not sit apart like, oh, I'm so sorry for you, and really what you're saying is I'm really am sorry for you, that I'm, I don't have to go through this, right? No, you get to actually meet them in their pain as a shepherd. Because you know the landscape of their pain. It's familiar to you. And in that landscape, you know where the paths of grace are because you found them. Peter, I'm commissioning you to help others grow in the same way I'm helping you grow. Let my strength work in your weakness. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. And let this work of grace become a source of blessing to others. So I think the application of this is, uh, is pretty clear. First, I, th- I think we tend to underestimate the power of grace. Um, I think we make the same mistake that, that Peter made, where we, we see the message of the gospel and we see a mustard seed. We, we talk about the love of God, and we see something that, oh yeah, that's true, and I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm a believer, and I, I'm glad I believed that, and, and I'm really glad, but, but we underestimate the genuine revolutionary power of the grace that's been planted in us as a result of this message. I believed the gospel, but now I've I got to fix myself. I believe the gospel, but man, I really need to grow in self-control. I believe the gospel, but, but man, I just need to, I need to fix this about myself or address this about myself or really get down to the hard work of doing this. Or Man, I wish I would stop doing this. I so disappointed myself. All the language of pride, shame, and condemnation. When we are there, we're there because we see the power of the gospel as a mustard seed. Something tiny and inconsequential. We don't see it for what it actually is, the power of resurrection. So, two things to help us grow into this. The first is, um, Jesus wanted to free Peter into the strength of grace, and he wants to free us into the strength of grace, right? He, he wants to free us into walking in the faith of, of actually experiencing the fullness of this power, right? Not, not walking in denial of it or walking minimizing it or, or walking trying to do God's work uh, in our way, in our strength. He wants to free us into his strength. So, so Jesus brought conviction into Peter's life to increase his freedom. So where is God pushing into your pain and bringing you conviction? Where's God poking you in an uncomfortable way. You're like, Steve, man, I, I, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing all right, man. I read my Bible, I pray. I work real hard, I tithe. I go to church. 
I'm pretty mature in my Christian walk. I, I just, I don't know that I really need, I don't have any area, I don't know. You're in a really dangerous spot. If that's where you are. Martin Luther said, all of life, and he meant the Christian life, is repentance. We tend to think of repentance as these, these heroic acts of confession and change that come after these devastating acts of sin and failure. But that's not biblical. God is always working to change us into the image of Christ, always. And if you're still alive and breathing and not yet Jesus, you have a lot more change to go through. You have a lot more repentance to work through in your life. If you don't know where God is currently convicting you and pressing into you to help you change into the image of Jesus, it might be because in your pride, you've become insensitive to the working of the Spirit. And that's a dangerous place to be. You can be incredibly religious and completely unlike Jesus. Now, for others of you, you know where it is. Man, it hurts. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a pattern of behavior. It's a, it's a truth that you're having a hard time believing or not believing about yourself. Maybe it's the voice of somebody who said something that you've internalized and you have a hard time rejecting it. Or, or I don't know, man. Maybe it's something you're doing or have done. Maybe it's you struggling with something someone has done to you. Someone has sinned against you and you're not processing their sin against you in a, in a very good way and you're harboring bitterness or self-pity or pride and resentment. I don't know. But here's the thing. If you identify where God is bringing conviction, you are identifying where God wants to deliver you more fully into the blessing of the gospel. Don't run from that. Don't be afraid of that. Jesus wasn't condemning Peter on the beach. He was speaking in love to deliver Peter into the freedom and the power of his calling. God's work in you is God's work for you. And God's conviction is a manifestation of God's love. He wants to see you work through the process of, of conviction. So I don't know what that looks like, but, but a lot of times it, it involves confession. If nothing else, confession to God, owning it and honesty before God, coming into the presence of God without pretending or performing, without blame shifting or, or coming up with a narrative that helps minimize it, but actually coming into the presence of God in all honesty and saying, Lord, this is, this is what hurts. This is where I, I, I am having a hard time believing the gospel. This is where a hard time following you, or this is a pattern of behavior I don't know how to overcome, or, or this is an attitude, man, that's gripped my heart. It's just coming honestly, confession to God. Sometimes it's confession to others. Somebody that you've sinned against, a friend, a coworker, a spouse. When your sin has wounded them and you, you owe them a confession. To come in honesty, without blame shifting, minimizing, without, without trying to come up with a narrative that explains or to make it their fault. To just come before them in all honesty. Remember, grace flows in truth. Condemnation thrives in deception. So maybe you need to come and confess. And maybe the confession isn't to somebody you sinned against, but somebody who needs to walk with you in it. Maybe you're confessing to, to good friends, people who love you and love God and want to see you grow in your relationship with God. And so you confess things to them, not for the purpose of, of like having them absolve you, but so that they know you and see you and can walk with you through this season of growth. Conviction often leads to confession, and confession often leads to repentance. There's a weird sickness that I've seen grow in the evangelical world where people get used to confessing but never repenting. They start using confession as this cathartic thing that makes them feel better about themselves. Well, I have this group, the accountability partners, and I just confess these things to them. And, and then with, but the purpose is to confess to feel better instead of confess to change. 
our pursuit should always be repentance. God, give me the gift of change. God, give me the ability to to expose this lie and believe the truth, to reject this this self-destructive, God-dishonoring behavior, and instead move in honesty and truth, fidelity and wisdom. Confession leads to repentance, and repentance is God's gift of change. Now, some of you are really struggling with this. You're understanding what I'm saying, and you're getting it, but you're like, Steve, I have so many doubts. I just, I don't have it all figured out, man. I don't know that I could approach God in the same way Peter approached Jesus, man. He's not here with me. I don't see him. I have all these doubts. I don't even know. Well, let me ask you something. What, what did Jesus ask of Peter? Did he say, hey, Peter, do you have the whole resurrection thing figured out? Hey, Peter, do you have a systematic theology of a, atonement and imputed righteousness? Can you explain that to me? No, he said, Peter, do you love me? You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't have to be confident and sure about all this. The fundamental central question is this. Do you love Jesus? Does the gospel, the story of Jesus, the one who died in your place, who took your guilt, who bore the weight of your shame and died under the condemnation you deserve and rose again that you might have new life, does that provoke within you a responding love? Do you love Jesus? Because if you do, you can trust Jesus. You can trust your pain in his nail-scarred hands. You can trust your failure in the hands of one who already died for it, that he might remove its guilt and cover you with his dignity. Do you love him? If so, move toward him. Expose those parts of your heart that you so desperately want to keep hidden. Move in honesty. If God is prompting you, if he's convicting you, which he is, Respond. Push in. So the first lesson, respond to the conviction that the Spirit is bringing into your life and push into repentance. The second lesson is this. God's going to work through your story of weakness to become a blessing to other people in their weakness. And that's part of the story. Like, you can't take that piece out. You can't just make this about you and your spiritual growth, and your walk with God, while I have a private spirituality, that's just not the way it works. That is not biblical. (laughs) God is going to work through your pain to be a blessing to other people in their pain. God is going to work through your experience of weakness so that you can walk with other people in their weakness. Sometimes your greatest strength is going to come from your deepest pain. Sometimes your greatest strength is going to grow out of the places where you experience your deepest weakness. I've experienced this in my own life. There are things that, man, they, they used to like, they're deeply shameful. Things related to my family, my upbringing, certain behaviors, whatever it was. And I have learned as I've simply brought those things into the presence of God that they might be exposed to the presence of grace and I might learn to love God in those spaces of weakness that I've been given the ability to walk into other people's pain and actually meet them eye to eye to sit with them in that darkness and to simply offer them the comfort of my presence without constantly needing the need to fix them or change them or because I know that place. Here's the thing, you guys. God is going to increase your experience of grace as you learn to share that grace with others. When you share that grace, the grace you've received in your painful places with other people in their places of pain, it increases your experience of grace. Because God didn't give you grace just to hold on to for your personal benefit. Grace always is a gift to be given. Grace finds its power in transition. As we experience and receive grace, we renew our experience of that grace by sharing it with others. And God will call you to share it with others. 
Now, here's the challenge. He's often going to do it at times you don't want to do it with people you don't want to do it with. Like in the boat, like sun's coming up. And Jesus is like, hey, I know you're wrapping it up. I know you're ready to come in. I know you've been fishing all night. Throw your net out. They're like, oh, come on, man. Now, here, that way? But God's power is released in their obedience. God is going to call you to love people who are hard to love at times you don't want to do it. God's going to call you to reach out in grace and connect with people when you're ready to wrap it up and go to sleep, when you're ready to check out and just focus on yourself. Often that's going to be the time when God says, now throw the net. Listen to me, you will be blessed when you do. Because there's a supernatural harvest that comes from obedience. 153 large fish. And guess what? The net didn't break. You have a greater capacity to love than you know you have. You have a greater capacity to reach out and meet people in their pain than you currently think you have. It will be inconvenient, it will be hard, and it will be a blessing. All right, guys, I want to wrap up this morning with a benediction. So we started out kind of awkward, right, with the whole call and response thing, right? Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I like to bookend things, so we're going to do awkward at the end as well. Um, And so this is the way we're going to do it. This is something that I actually learned in Kyrgyzstan when I was uh, working with some church planters there. And uh, man, I loved it. It was just a powerful image of of giving and receiving blessing. And so I want to give you a blessing this morning. Now, this is the way it's going to work. You're going to cup your hands like this, like you're receiving the blessing, okay? So, So go ahead. Don't look around at others. That just makes it awkward. Okay, so go ahead and cup your hands. And, and I'm going to speak the word over you. I'm going I'm to share some verses with you. What I want you to do is receive those verses. Don't analyze them, don't, but receive them, okay? And then when we get to the end, I'm going to say all God's people said, and we're going to take it and we're going to wash it like this, just physically wash it over, and we're going to say amen. This is our way of saying, this is mine. This is true of me. This covers me. And when we say amen, the word amen literally means let it be or it is true. So it's our way of saying this blessing is true of me and for me. Okay? So let's go ahead and cup our hands and I'm going to read this passage over you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen.